Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Two of the most powerful words in speculative fiction are what if. It leads to all sorts of ideas. What if you could? What if there were? What if were possible to, and a personal favorite, what if things had happened differently? That leads to a whole subgenre of alternate history stories. And our guest today has a new book that is a riveting example. One of the pivotal points in history often selected by alternative history writers is the American Civil War, dating back to McKinley Cantor's If the South Had Won the Civil War in the Saturday Evening Post back in 1961 on the centennial of that conflict. But today, Ben H. Winters puts a twist on the twist with his what if, asking what if the Civil War hadn't happened at all. The resulting novel, Underground Airlines, takes place in the current-day America in which four southern states, the hard four, still have slaves, and the U.S. Marshals Service, among other things, is in charge of chasing escaped slaves and bringing them back to servitude. Underground Airlines is not only an alternate history adventure, it's also an action thriller, and that is not surprising, considering Ben Wood is one of the few authors we know who has both an Edgar Award for the Mystery Writers of America and a Philip K. Dick Award for Distinguished Science Fiction. We're very pleased to welcome Ben H. Winters. Thank you so much. That was a really nice introduction. Well, it's a really nice book. I'll have to say that. Um, so many, I take uh, notes when I read, and I, I have page after page of notes. I'm going to try to concentrate down to the stuff that really boiled to the top, and there was so much richness in this. This is dense in the best possible sense of the word, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, in many ways, this seems to be a novel about identity, especially that of our narrator, Victor, who has many, many layers. Yeah, well, I mean, Victor is, um, so he is an undercover operative. So on the sort of base level at the beginning, um, our understanding of him is that he is a, a kind of spy. He's a bounty hunter. He works undercover. Um, he's African-American, but he works as a um, sort of an agent of the United States Marshal Service, recovering and returning uh, enslaved people who have managed to escape. Um, and but but underneath that he is um, he is himself as we discover fairly early on I don't think it's a spoiler he is himself no. uh, an escaped slave who was caught and instead of um, being returned he was offered this devil's deal um, you work for us um, and so you know and beneath that he is um, he's someone who is dealing with the trauma of his past of his childhood so the novel does have some sort of flashbacks that lace through it to his days um, working as he did at a slaughterhouse that, that uh, a kind of, um, you know, where he was a slave there when he was a kid. So he's a layered character. He has made compromises. Um, and I think to me, the most interesting part of the novel, although I'm obviously very proud of the speculative, speculative aspects and the, the world building and all that good crafty fiction writer stuff, the heart of the book is, is the hero, the anti-hero who becomes a hero. You know, the heart of the book is his struggle to reconcile himself with what he is, um, and, you know, that's the, hope, that's the hopefulness in the book and what is otherwise, I think, at times a quite grim uh, version of America. It is a very grim version of America, indeed. And uh, 
later on, I hope you'll be comfortable in reading a little section that I picked out that I think illustrates that, but it shows the, the great uh, characters that you have built. Um, one of the things I want to touch on is some of the world building in the, in the background in it. And you do a lot of uh, uh, things to anchor us in today and contrast it with with the alternate history that you have here. I mean, uh, I agree through here, you've got mentioned somebody's wearing a Captain America T-shirt. You've got CVS and Starbucks and Walmart are all in there. Yeah. But you will also have such things as the 172 delineated varietals of African-American skin tones. And you mentioned some of them throughout the book, like number 76, late summer honey, warm tone. That's something I would not have thought of, but seems perfectly logical as an exponential result of your initial choice. It's interesting. That, that detail about the, the varietals of skin tone is one that a lot of people have asked me about and a lot of um, reviewers note in their reviews as an example of the world building. Um, and I think from a sort of plot standpoint, it makes sense because these are, um, these are bounty hunters. They are looking for specific individuals. Skin color, as it is in our real world, is very often a thing that comes up on the list of identifiers of, you know, that you're looking for this person. They have these tattoos. They are this height. They are this skin color. Um, I also think our, our, our real life society remains, despite all our happy talk about being a post-racial society, we remain um, in many ways obsessed with skin color um, and, the, and the, the role that people's race plays in their lives. Um, and, and, and in many ways we have to be, or those you know, black people in this country um, are still visited with all kinds of indignities and inequalities because of their skin color. Um, so I, I think that you know, for me, a big part of the book was showing not just contrasting my alternate reality to the re to our real world, but also comparing, looking at the ways that although this is a alternate history, it isn't that alternate in some ways. There are so many ways in our real life that the legacy of slavery overhangs our day to day life, um, which is an unfortunate truth, but I think one that is imperative that we reckon with and continue to reckon with. One of the things that I noticed, if this book had a soundtrack, I think Michael Jackson would be playing it because he's mentioned a number of times throughout the book. Yeah, my hero loves Michael Jackson um, and listens to him as an almost a, um, a kind of safe place that he can go to. He, he'll put in his Michael Jackson tapes in the car. Um, and I, I just think that, that it felt like a natural choice because um, although people have quibbled with me, well, would Michael Jackson still have existed? Would he still have been famous? And blah, blah, blah. And I think that's, that's a nitty-gritty question. That's a world-building question. And I have this theory that in alternate universes, there are certain individuals who are so extraordinary in their talent and force of personality that one way or another, they would have been, uh, would have made their mark. And so Michael Jackson's career is different in my book, the history of it. But he still, I think as he was in our real world, a transformational figure and transformational as one of those African-American musicians who made a strong cultural impression, not just with African-American audiences, although he is rightly celebrated by African-Americans as being an important um, a sort of a historical figure and a meaningful cultural icon, he was also embraced by white people, by all people, all Americans, for the most part. Uh, and But then there was a sort of tragic quality to his arc also. Right. And the fact, idea of his, his lightening of his skin and all that, all that yeah. history. And it's interesting because you're right at one point. It's you're right. Michael Jackson's tragedy was always in his face, even from the beginning. You could see it in his eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think there's the truth about that. I think Michael Jackson was one of these figures who was so talented, so incredibly talented, but also he carried a lot of weight, you know. He carried a lot, and we put a lot on him, as we do on 
very talented people, especially ones who seem to us to be somehow otherworldly or special in a way that they come to belong to us. Um, which the, even that phrase, they come to belong to us, obviously resonates with the idea of, um, you know, the book is about a world in which black people still belong to white people. Um, and I'm asking, I think, over and over again in different ways in this book, um, how, what are we doing? How much are we doing to, to move fully beyond that terrible legacy? There was a, another quote that, that leapt out at me as I was going through it. It's And he says, or narrator says, that's the problem with doing the devil's work. It can be pretty satisfactory now and then. Yeah, it's, that sure is true, isn't it? Like, I think that, and again, this is a theme in the book, and it's a theme in, um, in my thinking about uh, in when I was writing this book. And like, to what extent do we allow ourselves to be compromised? You know, and, and obviously my hero is deeply compromised, and the nation is deeply compromised. And even that word, you know, in the antebellum America, we had a series of compromises. You had the Missouri Compromise. You had the Compromise of 1850. And what I've done in the world building of the book is extended those compromises forward in history. So I think I have, you know, there's a Compromise of 1910. There's a Compromise of 1983. Um, and so, and we, you and I now in our day-to-day -day lives are constantly making compromises, whether we think about them or not. We are compromised when we don't do more to help people who need our help. We are compromised when we, you know, use our, our iPhones or wear shirts that were made or built in, um, in, in close to slave labor conditions. Um, these are, I think, you know, these are, it's a base level fact of human existence that whether we think about it or not, we're constantly making choices about what we're going to do something about, what we're going to, where we're going to put our energies and who we're going to help. I think at this point, if it's if you wouldn't mind reading a section for me, if you have a copy of the book in front of you, which I suspect I do. you do, a couple boxes of them, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Well, and I have the the uh, the arc on here, and so it may not be the same page, but it's on 140 on my page, and it talks about freedom or Freedman Town serving a good purpose, but not for the people who live there. If yeah. that's yeah, and and just that, there, I know the passage you're talking about. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically, so if I can set it up a little for your listeners. Yes, please. Is a, is a term that's used in the book to refer to communities, northern communities, um, uh, where that are frequently the home to a lot of former, what are called in the book, PBs or persons bound, so escaped um, or otherwise uh, manumitted or uh, um, enslaved people who... Um, make their way north and then sort of gather and, and like in the way that you know in our real world communities form in uh, uh of of immigrants or of um very poor people or often of uh, uh what we call ghettos um so freedmen towns are uh, uh you know a fact of life in my alternate america and here well let's see where should i start um it took me some time, and it, basically what he, my hero was recalling a conversation he had a long time ago where another um, f a northern black man said, it's such a shame. Those places are such a shame. What, what good do they do? And now our hero is saying, um, it took me some time, but I know the secret now. Freedman Town serves a good purpose, not for the people who live there, Lord knows. People stuck there by poverty, by prejudice, by laws that keep them from moving or working. Freedman Town's purpose is for the rest of the world. The world that sits, like Martha, with dark glasses on, staring from a distance, scared but safe. Create a pen like that, give people no choice but to live like animals, and then people get to point at them and say, will you look at those animals? That's what kind of people those people are. And that idea drifts up and out of Freedman Town like chimney smoke. Black gets to mean poor, and poor to mean dangerous, and all the words get murked together and become one dark idea, a cloud of smoke, the smokestack fumes drifting like filthy air across the rest of the nation.
That is one powerful passage. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. And I mean, I think that, I think the way, you know, to the extent that this is a successful novel, it's because it asks the reader to think about the ways that it's not so different. And, and not to say that, you know, obviously we've come a long way. Let's not kid ourselves. We've come a long way since the 1860s and we have had manumission and we've had the Civil Rights Act and we've had, we've elected our African-American president twice. But I think it is important that we not allow ourselves to believe that we have somehow moved into a, as I said earlier, a post-racial or a um, fully equal society. And nor can we pretend that the institutions and attitudes that were formed in the time of slavery aren't still with us in so many ways. So that was the kind of, and, and I'm not sure that I had articulated all of that to myself when I began writing it, but no question that as I was writing it, as the finished book emerged, that was what I sort of realized that I was doing, you know, was thinking through the legacy of slavery by imagining that it had never gone away. Yeah. The um, process and response to the book has been pretty overwhelming. Yeah, in a lot of different ways it has. Yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, I'm not sure... Um, I, you know, there have been a lot of very, very positive reviews, which I've been honored and sort of privileged to read. Um, and there has been, I think, a conversation around the book itself, around the fact of the book itself, sort of parallel to the conversation around the actual book. So meaning some of the response, uh, I, you know, I guess largely on social media, but then sort of in a couple of articles, a lot, a lot of the response had to do with why is, why is this white author being hailed as visionary in some way when there are uh, African-American authors who have written about racism and slavery even in um, specifically science fiction or speculative contexts mm -hmm. uh, that have sort of gone unmentioned in the conversation around underground airlines. Um, and, and in particular, Octavia Butler, um, who wrote Kindred in 1979 and who was written, who yeah, yeah. wrote in a lot of different ways about racism uh, using sort of allegorical or science fiction tropes, uh, a book called Fledgling, which is kind of a vampire novel, you know? Um, so, it was really interesting and, and, you know, really interesting for me to find myself at the center of that conversation, having spent two years writing the book and thinking all the time about all the ways that um, white supremacy still makes itself felt in this country. And then to have people go, oh, a book written by a white guy about racism. What do you know? Um, and in other words, so to become an example of the thing that I was trying to indict. You have indicted a, a well, you, well. You've not indicted. You've incited a conversation, though. That conversation is valuable in and of itself, beyond the obvious merit of the book itself. And that's because we do not talk about race well in this country. And we, we need to do well, more of it. Yeah, we do. I mean, we we don't talk about race well. We talk about race a lot. Unfortunately, I, there's a, there are a bunch of different things. I mean, I think unfortunately a lot of the racial conversation has to do with it becomes obsessed with with um, I don't know, with particular moments, particular um, small issues that aren't small, but that, that feel like they can be solved. And the example that I really stuck out for me um, in the last few years was body cameras on police cars. You know, these, these young men were murdered in the street, you know? Um, and the conversation very quickly became, well, for, a lot, for some people, not for a lot of people, for a lot of people, the conversation right. became, we need a nationwide movement. And that's where Black Lives Matter emerged. Um, which is a very powerful and positive thing. But then for a lot of other people, it became, well, we should put body cameras on cops. 
and then no, we shouldn't for this reason. Yes, we should for this reason. And when it's too expensive or it's too invasive and it's not constitutional or it is constitutional, and that sort of swirls up and becomes this. So the whole conversation becomes not why are our police departments acting in this way. The conversation became yes or no on body cameras. Yeah, and so it's sort of we go off on these on these tangents that I think are a distraction from the larger issues. The, those those attitudes and institutions that I mentioned. Right. And, and of course, we can go on talking about all day because there's so many ramifications for it. Whether, well, what is the basis of poverty? Why are there more black people in jail? Than, uh, all true. of those are, are aspects of it. That's but I, I think the thing that was so effective of, about Underground Airlines is the way it reached me emotionally. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. And I, and I, you know, I love books that are able to do that. And I'm proud to hear that, that you feel this is one because I love mystery novels that are more than just mysteries. I love science fiction novels that are more than just science fiction novels. I love literary novels that manage to involve us in a complicated plot. And then we, but what really strikes us is the, 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 the way that a person has changed. You know, I feel like a book is what a book is supposed to be is like a machine that the author builds and then feeds a character or characters into the machine, and then they emerge on the other end transformed so that you as the reader have, a, have the same process. You know, you emerge transformed. So with a book like this one, where I, I think it's a bit of a high-wire act of making sure that there's enough world-building, enough convincing, nitty-gritty detail, enough of the philosophical and thematic resonance, but at the same time, like at the end of the day, it's about this, this man who's a detective and a, 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 you know, a kind of a cop, but who is also a wounded child, you know, and needs to find a way to become, you know, the hero that he is inside for the, you know, to put it in the, in the hokiest possible way, you know, but like, you know, when I read a, when I read a good mystery novel, it's not the mystery. The most important mystery is not the, the, who killed the heiress or who, you know, who stole the jewels. The most important mystery is who is this, this man or woman at the center of the story and why are they doing this, you know? Obviously, you have given this a great deal of thought and a great deal of insight into the character and into your own character, which is kind of tough to do. Well, I hope so. I mean, but this is why we read books at the end of the day, you know. And like, I, you know, this is kind of a side issue, but I've been thinking a lot about this because, like, uh, uh, I, I feel like we're so, all of us are so, and it happens so quickly, but we're so into kind of short bursts of thought these days, you know, because that's what Twitter and Facebook are, right? They're like a yeah. means of communication that is incredibly effective for communication, but only in um, short, variously clever um, bits, you know, like blasts. And I find myself forming my ideas into these like little snips, you know, or like little little snippets. And so that I, I feel like it's more important than ever that um, we sort of double down on promoting and thinking about and, and celebrating the power of novels specifically because they are long and they are involved and they require a sort of sustained in-depth attention to, to reveal their treasures, you know? And I think if we, if we start to give that up, we're in trouble as, as a kind of species or whatever, you know, I think that's, I think there's a real important case to be made for books right now. Well, absolutely. And, and particularly this is, this is why people like longer novels is they, if you find a world that intrigues and absorbs you, you want to spend time there. And yeah, that's, that's, this right. is a case of that. Of that. Thank, you. Thank you. And I have to ask, will there be more in this same universe you've built so craftily? Uh, you know, <laughs> never say never, but I, I'm not uh, conceiving of a sequel to this book right now okay. for right. the specific reason that I think there is a, um, there is a, 
a risk of distilling the moral force of a kind of thing like this. If we mm -hmm. sort of, if we spin it out and spin it out and it becomes, um, the next adventure, you know, the next yeah. chapter, it's like, well, you know, let's make sure that there is a reason to keep spending time in this dystopian universe beyond it's fun. Because in this book in particular, it, you know, it's fun is not reason enough to go there. I never wanted this to be, you know, author uses the horror of slavery as backdrop for, wow. you know, zany thriller. I always oh, no. wanted it to be author uses the tools of the thriller to take us um, to a, a, an important and interesting place of thinking about slavery and racism. The only reason I, I mentioned that is because just something, and this is the example of the, the depth of this book, is almost a throwaway paragraph, uh, not throwaway, but an aside where you mentioned you know, Texas seceding in 1964 and fighting a guerrilla war there until 1975, paralleling our Vietnam experience yeah. in, in this universe. And I'm thinking, I would like to read a story set in that aspect of the universe. Maybe nothing to do with the slavery stuff, but that that's fascinating in itself. So I will say, I will say specifically, you are not the first person to say that to me because that <laughs> that that little snippet of history jumped out. Yeah, because I build it that Texas, because of a huge influx of um, Mexican immigration and because of an early strong um, sort of independence streak, Texas became one of the first states to abolish slavery. Um, you know, at the state level, and then as a further push, they basically decided they they were going to secede from the union. But President Johnson, himself a former you know, himself a Texan and who had been a school teacher as he was in real life um, to Mexican immigrant children was like, no way, I'm not letting them secede. That's unconstitutional. And so he fights a war. The United yeah. States fights the Texas war um, to keep them in the union. And there's an uneasy truce. And so, yeah, that was one of the things of like, let's just get down to it. Let's have some, some clever world building here. Let's figure out an alternate reality where the Vietnam war wasn't fought. And instead we fought a nasty um, guerrilla war against the Texans. It's 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 fascinating stuff. Again, just just that that little spark uh, ignited a whole interest and curiosity in me. So I just that's why I bring that up. Um, is there something we have not touched on that you think is important for our listeners to know? No, I think you you've 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 covered the gamut for sure. Um, I it is important to me to make sure that um, you know that people. I guess if the last question is that the people have asked is you know is it. You, you as a white man, um, was it difficult? Did you think it was appropriate? Did you question yourself writing in the voice of the point of view of an African-American character? And that was the controversy that I expected, you know, when this mm -hmm. not came out. And more, much more of the controversy. And I think it reflects my own, um, a little bit of my own naivete about these issues. But the real controversy was, why is this novel getting attention when authors of color aren't? Which is very important, obviously. But some people have said, you know, is it, why are you writing this voice? And I just, I... I think it's important to say that white authors must take extraordinary care to write from the voices of non-white characters. It is beholden upon me as a white man to approach it with sensitivity, um, to avoid gross stereotypes and sort of demeaning um, visions of what it is like to be black, to do as much research and as much sort of intelligent conversation with friends and acquaintances and historians as I can. I tried to do all of that. But then finally to also say that to discount the possibility that we can write across race, you know, or that to discount the possibility that a white person could ever imagine what it's like to be black um, is to sort of reject the whole idea of fiction and also our common humanity, which is a dangerous road to go down. Well, I think you have summed it up beautifully. And again, this one is from our own personal 
and highly subjective uh, review and knocks it out of the park. This is a, a class, a class act by big time. Thank so, you. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Our guest today has been Ben H. Winters. The book is Underground Airlines. Autographed copies are available at VJ Books. Plug right there. And thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com.